But I don't think many compliance officers today think that that's just their job either. They think their job is to build an ethical culture. So whether we like it or not, we're in this situation where whether we consider a business to be ethical or not is about much more than whether or not they don't break the law these days. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back for another episode. And you are in for a real treat today because I'm in for a real treat today as I have one of my favorite people in the broader world of compliance, ethics, and a lot of other things, Allison Taylor. Allison, I'm so thrilled to be able to get you on the podcast. So first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Tom. It's lovely to see you and happy 2022. So could you tell us uh, what your current role is and what you're up to now? Well, I'm wearing a lot of different hats these days. So my day job, I guess we could call it, is that I am Executive Director of Ethical Systems. That is a research collaboration. It sits in the NYU Stern School of Business. It was founded by a well-known social and moral psychologist called Jonathan Haidt back in 2011. And it is a network of prominent business school professors that work on questions of ethical culture from different angles. They're mainly, but not all, social psychologists. So our network includes Dan Ariely and Adam Grant and Linda Trevino and Max Bazerman and a lot of people that your compliance listeners will know as having really shaped the field of business ethics. And we do research with companies, but our, our primary goal is really to get the best ideas from academia into the private sector. There are a lot of great ideas and great research that no one pays any attention to because the papers are too boring and no one reads them. So what we're trying to do is get those ideas to help people that are actually trying to make this stuff happen in real companies. So you also work with individual organizations from time to time. Could you tell us the nature of that collaboration? Yeah, it really, really depends. So we work only with companies that really want to do this seriously. They don't want to just benchmark, tick the box and do whatever everybody else is doing, but they really have questions that they want to get to the bottom of. So. One of our longest relationships is with Shopify, the Canadian Amazon, and we have been doing a lot of work assessing their culture and helping them build trust for a number of years. And it's particularly interesting because they had a remote team way before the pandemic. So that's really, really helped them, obviously, through all the disruption of the last few years. We also did a bunch of work with Novartis looking at what factors make people more or less likely to speak up. We have done some work with Verizon. We've done some work with eBay. We did a really interesting project for the Government Finance Officers Association. So that are the people that do budgeting at, you know, at the city level in the US and Canada and really trying to provide some help for them navigating questions of equity and fairness and justice, which, as you can imagine, have become super, super political. And these people, you know, they trained in finance. They're not necessarily used to the idea of, of running meetings where everybody's yelling at each other. So lots going on. And then I'm also trying to write a book. So having a lot of conversations about these topics as well. So I believe 
Are you teaching this term? I'm not teaching this term, but I do a ton of teaching. I teach professional responsibility and leadership. I teach execs. I teach MBAs. I teach undergrads. And then I'll be teaching sustainability and ESG from next year as well. So the work that you do at Ethical Systems, so I'm the son of a professor, so I'm very much attuned to the academic world and what academia can bring. And the research that you and your colleagues help foster, you use the word translate. Is that something that you help turn into maybe practical steps, tips, put on symposia about how to use it? How do you take the academic work and then turn it into something that a non-academic in the compliance corporate world can utilize? Well, I think it's partly about just kind of thinking through the concept. So I'll give you an example, and that's how you might go about assessing your culture, right? There are a ton of different ways to assess your culture. A lot of them are based on benchmarking your compliance program against other organizations, or they're based on giving you a score and comparing it to other organizations. So our argument would be that that might be useful. It's maybe not as useful as asking what's particular and unique to your culture. So what we have done is we have developed an assessment that's really based on the academic literature of what the most important things are to an employee of feeling like they're in an ethical culture. And that's what we assess. I already talked about this work for Novartis on what makes people speak up. So we looked at all the different literature around the constructs of what makes different people speak up. And then we design that into the assessment and the analysis. So a lot of the time, as I've mentioned already, there are really great ideas that nobody pays any attention to because of how it really is in the private sector where you have deadlines and goals and budgets and things that you need to do to uh, look like everybody else. So you mentioned several different types of initiatives, diversity, inclusion, equality, justice, and a wide variety of other topics that are now not simply politicized, but also encompassing what I see as an overall ESG framework. I was wondering if you could give us your thoughts on the role of ethics in ESG. I love this question. I'll try not to be too lengthy, but ESG, it's a very new term. It was coined in 2005, but it's really become super fashionable in the last five years and particularly in the last two years. Stands for environmental social governance, but it is the investor's term for responsible business, sustainable business, what used to be called corporate social responsibility. So we can think of ESG as just the latest iteration of a long, long movement that's been going on since maybe the 18th century, but certainly kind of since the 1950s, of saying that businesses ought to do better, they ought to manage their harms, and they ought to do good. And so out of this debate has come compliance, and ESG really tries to deal with everything that's beyond compliance. It said that companies should not just not break the law, but they should do stuff about climate change, and human rights and that kind of thing. So to answer your question, the roots of this field, the roots of this movement are absolutely ethical. They absolutely have a position about what business should and shouldn't be doing in society. But one of the most striking features of the pivot to ESG is that you wouldn't know that ESG had anything to do with ethics if you opened a newspaper today. 
or if you read any of the debate, the debate is all about, is doing ESG going to make you more money? What is the relationship between ESG and the business case? We've seen this happen in compliance as well, right? What's the business case for good compliance? So you can completely miss the ethical dimension of this because the debate going on in the press, whether you are pro or anti-ESG, is whether ESG makes or saves you money. And so the ethical dimension has been pretty much stripped out. And I think that's really, really unfortunate because what stakeholders really care about are ethical questions. And as you've mentioned already, questions of ethics and values and social impact are becoming or have become incredibly political and incredibly contentious. So if we just focus on whether there's a business case for this or not, I think we miss a lot of what stakeholders care about and a lot of the questions companies really need to grapple with. You're right. That was a fascinating answer. And now let me see if I can tie it maybe to culture, but you may see it in a different direction because you talked about the work ethical systems does around a cultural assessment. Could we also have an ethical assessment tied into that or would that be something separate in your mind? I think that's the same thing. So I think whether you have an ethical culture is is the interesting question. I mean, another sort of point we might make here is, is being a good performer on ESG the same thing as having an ethical culture? In theory, it is, right? In theory, this means a company and leadership and employees that care about the environment, care about human rights, care about workers being paid a living wage, care about waste and pollution. But because we treat ESG as being about the business case, we treat it as being a bunch of of metrics, there's actually evidence that CEOs that are giant narcissists are more likely to have a better ESG score. There is a treatment of ESG where we're treating it as PR. We're treating it as saying, look at all the fantastic things we're doing. Look at all these great reports with these smiling children and all the awesome initiatives that we had. And if you don't mean it, if you're just treating this as PR, there are a lot of times where you might look really good from an ESG perspective from the outside, but you've still got a very, very unethical culture. So it's complicated, just as the relationship between ethics and compliance is complicated. So the stakeholders you've talked about, or at least I've heard you talk about so far, have been internal stakeholders. The Business Roundtable's statement on the purpose of a corporation listed five separate stakeholders, and there may be more than, than that simple list, if I can call it that. But there are multiple stakeholders recognized now. Can you have a discussion about corporate ethics with a broader set of stakeholders for your company that would, by definition, include groups such as customers, groups such as third parties, groups such as your localities where you do business? Can you have that broader discussion around ethics as well as culture? I think you can, but it's very, very difficult. And I think what your question's getting at, right, is that different stakeholders will have different opinions about what is and isn't ethical. Our our own ethics, our own values are obviously very, very personal. And if you think about it, the idea that a company could perfectly reflect the ethics and values of every one of its stakeholders is totally ridiculous. So I think that's maybe part of the reluctance that people have to talk about ethics is that you start to get into something 
that's about judgment and it's personal, it's about religion, it's about culture. Different people think different things. Republicans think differently from Democrats, kind of, and, and, and so on. So one of the things that ESG and thinking about stakeholders might help us do is to resolve some of this and say that maybe rather than talking about ethics, what we should think about is the impact that we have on our stakeholders. So what is the impact that we have on our customers? What's the impact that we have on the communities in which we operate? What is the impact that we have on our employees? And then what is their impact on us? So I think maybe rather than talking about what we should and shouldn't do, a conversation could be that companies should manage the negative impacts that they have on their stakeholders and try and enhance the positive ones. That's a little bit less loaded, obviously, when we think about the number of stakeholders and how differently they might feel about particular issues. It's still incredibly complicated. And all of this is a long way of explaining why compliance which at least is clean. It's about whether you do or don't break the law. That's why a lot of people say that just thinking about whether what you're doing is legal or illegal is simpler and better, and that's what we should stick with. But I don't think many compliance officers today think that that's just their job either. They think their job is to build an ethical culture. So whether we like it or not, we're in this situation where Whether we consider a business to be ethical or not is about much more than whether or not they don't break the law these days. So in the last iteration from the Department of Justice around what constitutes a ethical compliance program came from a speech by Lisa Monaco in October. And as a very big part of that speech, she talked about the assessment of culture and That didn't get as much play as some of the other parts of her speech, but it seemed to me to be a very different way the department was going. I had not heard them talk about culture as something that they were going to focus on. They focused on it in terms of kind of specifically, we want to see how many legal violations you've had from a variety of basically any laws, not simply the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. But that having the regulators talk about culture, had you seen that before? And whether you've seen it or not, did you find that to be a a shift in the way people are thinking? I think there has been a shift. So I think culture's always been sort of there. If we think back to tone at the top, that's an expression of culture. That's an expression of whether leaders really mean what they say and whether they're really walking the talk. It's really the only kind of soft or cultural indicator of all those compliance recommendations. Everything else is pretty hard. It's a process. Do you have a policy? Do you have a whistleblowing line? Do you have investigations? Do you have independence, et cetera? So culture's always kind of been there, but I think regulators have stayed away from it because it's perceived to be soft and fuzzy and a matter of perception and too difficult to measure. But I think it's become really, really clear, not least because corporate scandals don't seem to be going anywhere. We've had compliance now for what, three decades, and ethical scandals are just as frequent as ever. So I think regulators and companies and compliance officers and everyone else are looking at this and and they're saying the process doesn't work in a vacuum. You can have a speak up line, you can promote it all you like, but if the culture is that your employees don't believe it's confidential and they don't feel safe to speak up, that's part of your culture, 
you can have the best design speak up program that you want and people still won't call the hotline and still won't report. And so I think these questions, you know, are leaders subject to the same rules as everybody else? Or is there one rule for the leadership and another rule for everybody? I'm obviously thinking about Boris Johnson. It's a topical topic this week. But I think that ability to safely speak up, the sense of kind of procedural justice, of people being treated fairly, all these questions are incredibly important to compliance. And I think we've focused a lot of the time on the process and the system and on looking good for the regulator at the expense of actually trying to solve the problem. So you mentioned several differences political differences, religious differences, economic differences. One difference that you didn't mention that I want to explore a little bit is generational difference. Before I turned to podcasting so much, you paid me perhaps the ultimate blogging compliment by calling me the rock and roll compliance blogger. But if my daughter, who's 25, described my rock and roll background, she said, oh yeah, my dad, he's a classic rocker. And so it never dawns on me that there's anything other than rock and roll, but apparently there is. And it's a way of introducing the difference in generations. So first of all, let me start with what do you see the role of Gen Zs or millennials in driving this discussion internally? And then maybe ask you to speculate, how can we harness that energy to really make a change or at least have a robust discussion? I think this is a great question, not least because I've just finished teaching the undergrads. And so this is really, really on my mind. What you will read in the press, quite obviously, is that, that younger generations, they want a meaningful career and they care much, much more whether a business is ethical or unethical. They care much more about the reputation. They care about these kind of ESG topics much more than previous generations. And they want careers that have meaning and they have impact. So that's one thing is this kind of push towards companies that if you want to attract and retain these people, you'd better be doing good stuff on ESG and you'd better be able to show that you're ethical. I think, though, the more interesting and significant point to be made about Gen Z and millennials is how savvy they are about social media and how incredibly tuned in they are to corporate hypocrisy and efforts by corporations to say one thing and do another. So something I'm very fond of saying is that leaking is the new whistleblowing. If you are Gen Z, you're pretty unlikely to call the hotline anyway. Even then, it's a kind of strange to think you'll call the whistleblowing or speak up line and to say, I don't think my company is really purposeful, or I don't think my company is doing enough about climate change, or I don't think my company is doing enough about human rights. So I don't think a lot of companies have got a mechanism to kind of collect these opinions and collect these views. But what is happening is that the Gen Z and millennials, maybe they make some effort to raise these concerns internally, but if they don't get anywhere, they're going to leak a bunch of damaging stuff about you onto Twitter or onto Instagram. And that, along with a lot of pressure on non-disclosure agreements, a lot of pressure on confidentiality agreements, what is basically happening is that confidentiality is dead. You can no longer assume that you can control what is being said about your company on the outside by having very rigorous kind of legal and confidentiality agreements. Even Facebook, you can imagine how technologically savvy they are, but they were reduced to sending messages on the internet to say, just please, please stop leaking. 
I really want you all to stop leaking. KPMG and the same thing in the UK. So companies really can't control this. There's also been a rise of employees leaving and stealing a lot of data and a lot of algorithms. Companies are having a lot of problems, I think, kind of managing reputations in the way that they used to in the 20th century. And they've got to therefore kind of get into this conversation and get into what these young people want and try and meet these expectations. So you ask what companies can do. I mean, I think there's a lot that companies can do, but one thing they shouldn't do is to try and shut down this discussion internally. So to my point about leaking being the new whistleblowing, Apple, there started being this big kind of discussion on, in Apple's internal Slack channel about pay equity and pay transparency, and Apple tried to shut it down. What happened next? We're having a big conversation about pay equity at Apple on Twitter. So if you think you can shut down this conversation, you're going to shut down internal conflict, what you're actually doing is just pushing this outside and making it way worse. Typically, to start a corporate ESG program, you do something called a materiality assessment. And that's to assess what are the material non-financial matters that are important to your stakeholders. And once again, that could be a variety of internal and external groups within an organization. Is there a way to incorporate what you guys at Ethical Systems do in terms of culture and ethical survey into that materiality survey so that it really gives, I don't want to say comfort to employees, but gives them really a stake that they can be more engaged in with trying to help their company or direct this conversation about where we want to take our company. Is that even feasible? Yeah. So this is such a good idea. So The way that materiality assessments are typically done is that you will interview a lot of external stakeholders. So you'll interview investors and major NGOs, major customers, major suppliers. But then internally, what you'll do is interview the senior leadership team. You'll interview the CEO and the CFO and the head of compliance and the head of risk and the head of procurement and the head of marketing, et cetera. And so typically, this has been done exactly as you're implying in a very, very top-down way. But it is an extremely good idea to also survey or have focus groups with your employees overall and find out what issues they care about as well. Don't just talk to the senior leadership team. I think this is another point I'd make about Gen Z. We've had this idea for a very, very long time that what leadership is, right, is you set direction from the top, you incentivize people to perform, and you sit back and you let the money roll in. That's not how Gen Z wants to be led. They want to be coached and mentored and encouraged and listened to. And so this idea of kind of top-down direction, I think, is also really becoming coming under pressure. CEO job descriptions are changing because we're needing to look for different skills in senior leaders, more emotional skills, more listening skills, and a bit more humility. You know, I think I should have done all of this in a call to you to prepare for a podcast. This has been fabulous. (laughs) So unfortunately, we're near the end of our time. But if I was wondering if our listeners wanted more information on ethical systems or really any of the topics we've touched on in this podcast, where could they go, Allison? They can go to our website, which is ethicalsystems.org. I would also say they can find me on LinkedIn. I usually write a lot of articles. I'm trying to write a book at the moment. So I have very, very little time to do anything, but I do usually post on LinkedIn with some news of the day and and what I think about it. And I really appreciate the debate that kind of results there. So 
not writing as much as I usually do at the moment. Hopefully will be again soon when I finish my book, but really appreciate debate and input and people getting in touch with me on LinkedIn. And I would suggest if anyone is not connected with Allison, you should connect with her just for her post. She always, as she said, has a few thoughts and she reposts some excellent articles that uh, I utilize quite a bit in my work. So check her out on LinkedIn and, and send her a connection invitation. Allison, thank you so much for taking the time. Visiting. I forgot how much fun it is to chat with you. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Me too. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.